Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to have so many of you here with us today. My name is Gary Harvat. I'm from the Client Services team at QuickMed Claims. And I'm joined today by my two esteemed colleagues, Chuck Humphrey and Danville, and Ed Marasco, who's at home like the rest of us uh, in Pittsburgh. So uh, first and foremost, before we get started, I just very simply wanted to say that I hope all of you joining us today, I hope you and your families and your teams that you represent are doing well. No question at all, these are very challenging times, but I think if we're all, we all stick together, follow the rules and, uh, and, and abide by them, I think we'll be okay. For those of you on the front lines, on behalf of our entire organization, thank you. Um, who'd have ever thought this, but uh, we're all gonna get through it and hopefully, uh, with each day, we get closer to resuming a normal lifestyle. I must tell you that this is a very fluid situation. There are things changing with this almost uh, minute by minute. I was just upstairs a little bit ago to uh, grab a sandwich, and I see that from Pennsylvania side, we're having a press conference with more information. Uh, Chuck and I and Ed have been getting information left and right from CMS and all the uh, governmental authorities. So there's a lot of things happening and I'm sure you're getting the same. So hopefully we can uh, bring some clarity to that as we move forward through today's program. So with that, uh, we had originally intended that this program today be uh, entirely devoted to uh, the FAA Reauthorization Act, which is uh, uh, in, the, in the news and has been in the news for a while when it comes to surprise ambulance billing. And uh, my colleague, Ed Marasco, has been deeply involved in this. But of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic out there, we felt it would only be very important for us to devote um, a portion of our program to cover some of this information uh, with you as well. And it seems by the numbers of attendees, uh, that was a good move on our part. So I'm going to first introduce Ed Marasco uh, to start us off today. And again, if you do have questions, just type them in. We'll be glad to pose them to you. So thank you all for attending. God bless you, stay safe. Ed, it's all yours. Thanks, Gary. And uh, just to echo Gary's comments, uh, please be safe. Take all the proper precautions in your organizations. Um, we're thinking about you as you're out there on the front lines doing your thing. So look, the issue of surprise medical billing and balance bills is not something that's new. It's been uh, a plague of ours for the last couple of years. Um, and as I start out here today, I just wanted to take a moment to sort of maybe uh, take a backward step and, and do some definition. So uh, recently a testimony before the U.S. Department of Transportation, Georgetown University Professor Jack Hoadley was asked to provide some definition of what this challenge was that we were facing. And so uh, from, a, from a surprise medical bill perspective, uh, the common definition is any bill sent by a medical provider to a patient for an amount larger than expected. Likewise, with regard to balance bills, the definition is a bill sent by a medical provider to a patient for a balance remaining after insurance makes a payment and after normal patient cost sharing and deductibles are applied, so essentially co-payments and those sorts of things. So this issue really uh, came of age last year uh, with a variety of different things that were going on uh, in the community. but. With respect to the larger underlying problem, what I'd like to say to you is I'd like to make the case to you that we're really talking about, when we talk about surprise medical bills and balanced billing, symptoms of a much larger problem, a more underlying disease, if you will, to use 
uh, the, the current events of today's terms. Um, and, and basically, um, the story here is the real underlying issue is the failure of the U.S. healthcare system to align the incentives of the various stakeholders, patients, employers, insurers, providers, regulators. What happens nowadays is providers don't get enough adequate reimbursement for a lot of the work that they do. And we're talking about emergency departments, we're talking about physicians, we're talking about medical transport providers. And so they have to do what is called as cost shifting, which means when they don't get adequate reimbursement from certain types of patients. So Medicaid patients, we know historically has low reimbursement. Um, there's a firm belief out there that Medicaid does not adequately reimburse providers of many types. And certainly in the transport world, we would agree with that at an adequate level. And so our, our way to stay, keep afloat and keep our organizations going is to shift that cost to uh, those that do pay more adequately. And that would be commercial payers in many respects. And so what you have happening over time is a large portion of that burden for the um, folks who can't afford to pay and those payers that are paying less um, ends up driving up the charges that go to commercial payers. And that's okay for a period of time, but when you get to a certain level, then you have a pushback on the part of the insurance companies, because quite frankly, they're being um, squeezed on the other end on the employer side, because each employer, and we're no different in our organization at QuickMed, we're trying to provide as good or better coverage every year um, to our employees, but we don't want a double digit increase. We don't want to pay 15, 20, 25% more uh, year over year for providing that coverage for our employees. It's very important to us. So you have that challenge of the insurance companies as well, trying to balance the insurance premiums that they charge uh, with what they're able to, what they're required to pay um, individual providers. So what happens is, uh, is uh, the providers and suppliers like us have to make a decision and they have to make a decision about whether or not they're going to be in that work, which means they're going to contract with an insurance company and accept that payment as payment in full versus whether or not they're going to remain out of network and allow the insurance companies to pay uh, a portion of what their charges are and then require the providers and suppliers, that's us, to go ahead and bill the patient the balance between that amount that the insurance company is paying and the full charges. And that number is usually somewhere in the middle. And so the rift therein becomes with the patients, um, they don't expect in many cases to get that bill. They don't certainly don't expect in many cases for the bill to be that significant. And that's where the political pressure has, has come to bear in the last uh, year or so that we've got ourselves on the radar screen, particularly those of us uh, in the air medical transport industry. But the real issue is not one of transport only. This happens all over the healthcare delivery system. So again, you might find yourself uh, needing emergency services. You go to the local emergency department and um, you select that particular emergency department, of course, unless you're an extremist, because it's in your network. It's a part of the, the network or the insurance company that you um, have your coverage with. And you go there and you expect that um, the charges are going to be covered in full or at least up to the amount that's in the, the agreement between the insurance company and your healthcare provider, only to find out after the fact that, yes, the hospital is in network, but the emergency physician group and the lab folks and the anesthesiologist who had to come see you and the cardiologist who had to come down and visit you during your stay were not in network and you have these huge bills. So in addition to surprise medical billing and balance billing being a challenge, the other real issue in our industry is transparency. 
And the fact of the matter is, in our circumstance, in many cases, it's very difficult for patients and families to understand what that cost is going to be. You know, we don't generally publish those rates, uh, whether they're contract rates or our full charges. Some folks do, but many institutions don't do that. And so the, the rift on that side of it is um, these patients are calling us in good faith. They need our service, but they have no idea what the cost is going to be after it's over. And in certain circumstances, those costs are astronomical. So with the uh, FAA Reauthorization Act last year, the impetus was put in place to assemble uh, an air ambulance patient billing and advisory committee, which is was um, chartered to look at this issue and try and develop some solutions around which we could build future policy moving forward. And, and the couple of main issues besides balanced billing and surprise medical bills, as well as the transparency part of it, creating awareness on the part of the patients is how in the world do we come to a rate between insurers and providers that'll be acceptable to both parties? And therein lies the rub. So there are several pieces of legislation that were proposed over the last year. And quite frankly, during last summer, uh, there was a lot of traction and there was um, sort of both parties were in support of developing a solution to this problem. And there were different approaches proposed, but there were several pieces of legislation that were making their way rapidly through Congress to address this issue. And to take a quick step back, if you're not aware, at least on the air ambulance side of this, there is a complication by virtue of the fact that the Airline Deregulation Act applies to the work that we do in the air medical transport community. This is different than our hospital colleagues in the emergency department and also different, different than our ground colleagues have to face. So there have been, and you may have read about several state pieces of legislation and state regulatory changes uh, that have been put in place to address this issue on some of those other fronts. But the fix on the air medical transport side really must come from uh, the federal government in this circumstance. And so there, uh, while some believe that a free market solution is the right solution, some believe that there might be some regulatory tweaks, at the end of the day, because of the ADA, there will almost definitely in our world, in the air medical part of our world, need to be a legislative solution. So those pieces of legislation were moving quickly last year through the process. Uh, uh, quite frankly, the provider side was not as in tune to it maybe as they should have been, and that includes uh, those of us in the transport industry as well as the broader provider side. And th these pieces of legislation were moving through rather rapidly. At some point last fall, uh, the, the provider side woke up to the issues uh, that were being sort of maybe some of the unintended consequences that were being advanced in the various versions of the legislation, and pushback ensued. And thank goodness, because some of the solutions that were being proposed were not necessarily um, going to be mutually beneficial, shall I say. So uh, the rub points really exist on three levels with all four pieces of legislation that were, that were in, the, in their way working through Congress uh, late last fall. Number one is network matching. And this is kind of a complicated issue. The idea of driving providers and suppliers to be in a network, in a broader network, is something that we all I've heard a lot about in recent years, going back to the, um, uh, the institution of Obamacare. Uh, and, the, and the concept is that with broader networks and tighter networks where people, uh, where providers can be uh, working together, there's an opportunity to make it more cost effective and ensure that patients get the right level of service at the right time uh, at the right cost. 
you may be surprised to find out, I know I was, uh, that there is actually a, a piece of legislation uh, and regulations that go with it, which uh, have the express purpose of avoiding collusion, as it's, as it's termed, which you and I call network development. And so there may be some regulatory aspects of being in network that would limit uh, how a new piece of legislation uh, would move going forward and create some conflicts between uh, those who are trying to get everybody to be in network and the fact that some of that might not be legal in some circumstances. The second issue, and I mentioned this before, is how do we develop a reimbursement benchmark? So some would suggest that that should be based off of the Medicare allowable for all types of transport. The issue that you and I are aware of, and, and most people who follow the industry at all, is we know that the Medicare fee schedule is woefully under reimbursing us with respect to our cost. So any benchmark based on that rate is gonna have to be a multiple thereof. And so it makes it kind of challenging because we know that fee schedule is inadequate at the present time. Some others uh, have proposed that we would uh, develop a, a negotiation process to come up with a reasonable rate that might be somewhere in between uh, what uh, the uh, in-network rate is and what full charges are. That becomes a little more challenging because how do you resolve those disputes? So one, one uh, of the versions of the legislation that was advanced last year suggests that we use a baseball type arbitration program. And if you're familiar with sports at all, particularly the baseball program, you know that how that works with the athlete and, and uh, the employer, which is the team, is they each put a number in front of an independent third party who is, represents sort of an independent group that's, that, that's providing that arbitration. And they will review those two numbers and come back with what will be basically a binding number somewhere in the middle that both parties would agree to for a period of time. So there are some folks that have proposed, and I think most of the provider side is much more in favor of this particular dispute resolution process than not, because there would be a third party that could be brought in that would provide some balance to the discussion. The other approach would be to simply use uh, uh, the uh, average in-network rates that are used around the country. And that becomes problematic because as you know, uh, not everybody charges uh, sort of a proper and appropriate amount. We have a lot of agencies that are subsidized by tax dollars or memberships or other sorts of things. And so, you know, whether or not that number is real or artificial becomes a point of some debate if you start to use sort of in-network contracting rates that are used around the country. So all these things have been challenges. Now, uh, earlier this year, there was some sense and there was some movement as early as recent as early February. Um, all of these bills, all of the four versions that were out there were reported out of committee and were on their way into floor debate. And lo and behold, within a few weeks, uh, we arrived in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So at this point in time, uh, there's not much movement on surprise medical billing. And it's not the only issue that's been, that's been in front of our legislators over the last few months. Obviously impeachment, the overhaul of the Stark Law, um, there's drug price uh, restrictions, there's a more global price transparency rule that's been something that has been in front of Congress as well. So I'm not suggesting that prior to the pandemic this thing was a slam dunk, but there certainly was a little more movement uh, earlier on in this year. With the present situation, uh, we're sort of stuck in a holding pattern. So a couple of things I wanted to mention to you uh, this Friday in our blog, there'll be some more detailed information beyond what I presented here this afternoon. And it'll be the first in a three-part series that goes through this matter um, over the next three weeks. And the final piece will be a couple of weeks from now 
uh, and hopefully it will provide some more visibility into what's happening. But to be honest, everything's in a holding pattern. Even the Air Ambulance Patient Advisory Committee, which was due to report out to both the Secretary of Transportation and the Secretary of HHS in July, those meetings have all been put on hold, the main committee meetings as well as the subcommittee. So I think right now folks, we're kind of in a holding pattern, which is one of the reasons we decided today to shift gears early on in the presentation and move over to talk a little bit about what's happening with COVID-19. So at this point, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Chuck Humphrey, uh, to begin the discussion about uh, some of the changes that are happening in the medical transport world. And we will allow some time for questions at the end on both topics. So I hope you'll stay with us and uh, we'd be happy to take those questions. Chuck? Yeah, thanks Ed so much. And uh, folks, I have read um, Ed's blogs, the th all three parts. And uh, if you have interest in understanding this uh, surprise billing issue at a great level, uh, please do uh, read those blogs coming up. Uh, I think uh, you'll find it very informative and that's whether it's ground or air. So thanks Ed, G great job. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing some comments from folks uh, get a little more insight into that. So um, it, it doesn't come by any surprise that we have uh, shifted gears here and gone into talking COVID-19. Now, you know what folks, I, I don't know about you, but I am on digital overload <laughs> with all of this um, and not to make light of it, but there is so much guys, I think you can attest over the last three or four days, we can barely keep up with this. So like uh, Ed said, like Gary said, um, we're going to give you a, a quick overview. Uh, certainly it's changing literally minute by minute. So, uh, but we think we have a good synopsis right now. And, and, you know, thanks to the folks that we gain information from the American Ambulance Association, uh, the folks at Page Wolfberg and Worth, you know, you, you folks know these are uh, the folks that are at the top of their game and, and also advocating on our behalf in the industry. So, um, you know, we, we hats off to those folks that are down in the trenches and um, getting, getting clarifications and state associations. I know um, the, um, the Ambulance Association of Pennsylvania has done a good job in funneling information. And not only is there information coming in from Medicare and CMS, but, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Medicaid, although that's such a moving target because there's so many different variations. And then also all of you are trying to crunch down some of your guidance from your um, you know, your state boards and the folks that you answer to about how to properly don PPE and how to approach and how to report so they can gather information. And so there's a lot of overload. So we thought we'd take a few minutes, break this all down, just some bite-sized chunks. And then like uh, Ed said, we will answer some questions. So uh, first of all, basically what we're going to talk about today is the, the CARES Act that passed a few days ago. And this is part of what we all consider the stimulus package, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, so the C-A-R-E-S Act. And uh, you'll also hear us talk a lot today about PHE. Um, if we alphabet soup you to death, feel free to ask a question, but we're talking about public health emergency here. So we'll kind of globally refer to what's going on as PHE throughout our discussion. So the first thing we want to talk about um, that CMS has granted us, of course, we're interested in Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare specifically, because it does pay such a large percentage of all of us who uh, do this in the industry. 
Um, and so we're going to talk about primarily Medicare today, but um, the regulations handled down from the federal government. The first is uh, signature relief. So when CARES was first uh, uh, brought into law, uh, it did mention that a patient or we'll call them beneficiary, they call them beneficiaries, uh, signatures will not now be required as proof of delivery for durable medical equipment. So the minute that came out, uh, kudos to the American Ambulance Association, um, they immediately pinged out to CMS and said, hey guys, would ambulance also be considered in that because it's an ancillary service? And uh, uh, I can tell you that while we're waiting on clarification, both at the request of the AAA and also Paige Wolfberg and Worth, um, uh, CMS has verbally indicated that um, we are relieved from obtaining a patient's signature as proof of delivery of care for the duration of this public health emergency. So uh, one of the best practices that is recommended, and we agree with that here at Quick Med Claims, is somewhere on or about that signature area, whether you collect the signature digitally on a tablet or in a written form, uh, hard copy, that you do know COVID-19, somewhere on or about the signature area, and then also be sure that that signature form is dated. Uh, that way, if the audit would happen, say, a year afterwards, and it's always possible, um, the auditor would plainly see that the lack of a signature was due to the restrictions of not wanting to touch and have that touch interaction uh, by gaining a signature. And also there's been some suggestion, and I don't know, Ed or Gary, if you, uh, I didn't see so much on this, but there was also some suggestions about secondary verification. Uh, I'm thinking they're thinking something like hospital face sheets, uh, such as um, when we don't gain a signature in regular times, uh, backing up that uh, alternative signature. I haven't seen too much on that, but I know it was mentioned summarily somewhere throughout some of the things that I've been reading over the past couple of days. So that's the first thing. So uh, I'm sure that there, if there's any providers on the call, uh, you're somewhat cheering because certainly we want as little touch interaction as we can uh, right now while we're dealing with this uh, pandemic. Um, second point we wanna make is that all audits are suspended for Medicare fee for service during the PHE. So this means that anybody who might be under prepayment review that was being conducted by one of the Medicare administrative contractors or MACs, uh, or that are under the targeted probe and education program, we're all familiar with TPE. These are the common audits we see on a regular basis. Uh, if those are in progress, if you were in the middle of that, they'll be suspended and all claims that were on hold for review will immediately be released and paid. So that is uh, good news for some, I'm sure. Um, of course, uh, after the fact, they certainly um, can go back and reenact that review, most likely will. But for now, they're cutting everybody a break. Cash flow is at prime interest here. So obviously we know we all have to spend more for supplies. We're spending more possibly on overtime for folks or you know, whatever's involved with the increased costs with responding to this pandemic. So um, they're releasing that kind of cash flow on purpose. 
Um, otherwise, we're talking about ending post-payment reviews, um, supplemental medical review, contractor reviews, and also the RAC or the recovery audit, contractor audits. All of those audits are now suspended indefinitely for the period of the PHE, but CMS did withhold the right to conduct medical reviews either during or after the PHE if they suspect that any provider or supplier is involved in some kind of fraudulent activity. So they'll still watch those uh, metrics. They'll still take a look at their data that they look for for fraud and abuse. And um, uh, we're sure that nobody on this call has that intent in mind, but there still will be some oversight uh, for those that may want to try to trick the system during this time. So fair warning out to everybody there. But that is good news, guys. I'm sure you can agree um, that any release in cash right now is a plus for all of us in the industry. Next thing is government sequestration is now eliminated for the period of beginning May 1st through December 31st of 2020. Now, some of you may not even remember that this is in place. Um, this dates back really to 2012 when they were trying to balance the budget. That's so long ago, I can hardly remember what 2012 was, guys. But nonetheless, um, it actually drug out to 2013. In 2013, sequestration, and this was at all levels. So it was defense cuts spending. It was government spending cuts. And then across the board, a 2% cut off the base rate payments of all Medicare payments. Um, it actually was an overnight kind of surprise thing, wrote in on a bill, nobody expected it to happen. And all of a sudden it became law because uh, folks couldn't get together on balancing the budget. So it was to save uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $16 billion over the course of uh, 2013, believe it or not, till 2029. So just about 15, 16 years, and we're right in the middle of that. So uh, they have decided to suspend that. So come uh, with adjudication on claims, May 1st, uh, dates of service, and afterwards, that 2% uh, uh, deduction from all of our Medicare fee schedule payments will go away. So you will get a 2% boost. Um, it, you know, you can say, well, that's not a lot, but add it up right now, any little bit helps. So that will drop, like I said, May 1 through 1231. And then that does mean, though, that sequestration will drag out one more year. So instead of ending in 2029, it will end in 2030. And uh, um, hopefully, guys, we're all around to see that, but uh, we'll see what happens there. But that is another plus for sure. Uh, next point that I had down on my little blotter here, guys, is uh, accelerated Medicare payments. Uh, so Medicare Part A or Part B providers and suppliers. Now, Part B is most of what we are in the ambulance world, although there are some Part A folks, especially those that are hospital-based, uh, can choose to bill Part A. Um, but um, you can apply. And there are now links. If, if those of you who received our bulletin the other day with the announcement on uh, the tweak for this um, uh, webinar, um, we provided links for all of the Medicare administrative contractors or the MACs. We provided links for you to uh, go right to the application 
for this accelerated payment. So what you can do is you can go on to that link and make a request up to three months, 100% of your historical Medicare reimbursement for a three-month period to be advanced to you. And this also includes railroad Medicare as well as fee-for-service. Now, it does not include the Medicare Advantage plans because those would be administered by private insurers or contracted uh, entities with the government. That's not to say that possibly, and we have not seen this yet, those uh, Medicare uh, Advantage plans may offer something similar, but that is not on the table yet. So we've seen nothing. But um, you must have billed Medicare as a provider or supplier for 180 days immediately prior to the date of the signature on the provider's or supplier's request form. So if you were to apply today, you would have to have had billed Medicare six months prior to today in order to be eligible. Additionally, your organization cannot be in bankruptcy. You cannot be under an active Medicare uh, medical review or be the target of a program integrity investigation. And finally, you cannot have had any current outstanding delinquent Medicare overpayments prior to the public health emergency. So again, you can request up to 100% of your historical Medicare payments. But one, And once that request is approved, by the way, they are telling us that they will be processed and delivered to you in about seven days. Now, that's pretty amazing. I found that very interesting, but they really want to get this money out. Now, uh, I'll make two points on this, and guys, feel free to jump in here if you feel the need. Um, for one is, let's remember this is an advance. So if you get this, it is a nice infusion of cash, and you may need that right now. But then you have to remember, if you take the full 100% for the next three months, the claims that we will submit on your behalf as your biller will offset that advance. So basically for the next three months, you'll get that infusion and then you won't see any money from Medicare fee for service until that advance has been satisfied by, by the claims that should have been paid within that period. Okay. And, and, and secondly, um, just to uh, uh, make a point here, you, you must remember that you need to be prepared for that hit during that three month period. So, you know, just uh, have some uh, sit down and run the numbers, you know, uh, upfront, okay, but what happens at the end of that three month period, uh, if that comes down to it. So just be, uh, be careful with that. Uh, it's something that we feel that uh, you need to be aware of so you don't miscalculate on what you're going to have at the end of that period. I, it's like being a kid at Christmas and you get all that money that mom and dad may give you and you go out and spend it on the new um, PS3 or four or five or whatever's out there. And then uh, you need new sneakers uh, for gym at the end of, uh, I don't know, they even have sneakers in gym anymore. I don't know, guys, you know, I'm really <laughs> dating myself. But then all of a sudden, oops, I don't have any. So, hey, mom, uh, can you lend me some money? And uh, uh, hey, government, lend me some more more money may not be the case. Um, also want to uh, caution you, there's been some confusion that this is the aid package that is out there for all of us 
And that is not the case. So advanced payment is funded partially by the CARES Act, but it is not uh, exclusive of other aid that's available to you. So you need to go out and take a look at that. We won't even get into that today, but there are other uh, parts of the package that can aid you with regards to uh, unemployment and uh, covering your costs for, um, uh, guys help me out here, uh, covering your employment costs, your staffing costs, those kind of things that are gonna be available in addition to this advance. Right, yeah, Small Business Administration has a variety of loan and, and forgiveness programs, grant programs, and most of, most of our clients out there, uh, most organizations in EMS are in that size range where they would be eligible. And, th and there's money available both for for-profit and not-for-profit um, organizations. Okay. Yep. Good, thanks. And just as a, as a note here to those attending, uh, one, feel free to type your questions in. And secondly, Chuck mentioned the uh, document that we sent out to all our clients and friends. If you did not receive a copy, just drop me a note here on this webinar and we'll get one out to you. I know our good friends at Ninth Brain also posted the uh, document on their um, web page, I believe Holly did. So it's out there as well for you folks also. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not sure what Mac you're in, we even provided a map of where, you know, what states, contiguous states are as part of your individual Mac. So it'll give you a, a good, good insight into where to apply. Okay, so let's move over to approval for payments for transport, so alternative destinations. Now, we know that we're all anticipating that we may be taking patients to places other than hospitals and emergency rooms during this crisis. Um, there are a lot of plans for uh, university dormitories, hotels, um, you know, the, the, in New York City, the Javits Center is now a hospital, you know, it's set up by the uh, maybe transport to one of the hospital ships, depending where you are. So there's a number of different areas. So um, CMS has relaxed um, and expanded the list of covered destinations for both emergency and non-emergency transports to include basically all destinations and from any origin point that is equipped to treat your patient consistent with EMS protocols that are established by your state and or region or local uh, guidance and protocols. So as long as there is a place that physically exists that you can transport a patient to for care, these will be covered. And um, they have to be a part of an alternative site that's connected to a hospital, a critical access hospital, a skilled nursing facility, community mental health center, federally qualified health clinic, rural health clinics, doctor's offices, urgent care facilities, ambulatory surgical centers, and any location that's providing dialysis outside of an end-stage renal disease facility uh, where an ESRD is not locally available. So that's a long list, uh, but it's basically just about anywhere that's connected to a physical hospital or healthcare facility where you must transport the patient. This could mean an inner facility transport from a hospital, say to a quarantine site that's been set up to keep the coronavirus out of the normal hospital flow. So there was some question initially whether they were gonna approve non-emergencies. They did include that. And also it can include transport 
of a patient back to their house, again, to quarantine where the patient may not be so serious uh, medically. But do want to caution that medical necessity still applies. So you do in your run sheets have to prove medical necessity. Now the um, AAA is, uh, has submitted to CMS asking them to confirm if a patient who requires isol isol isolation meets medical necessity. So of course, if the patient were ambulatory and could move about, but required isolation because they were infected, would that be enough to qualify medical necessity for an ambulance vehicle? And, and I'm hoping that's the case, guys, because I think it'd be very difficult to provide decon in a wheelchair van as opposed to the ambulance vehicle. So um, we're hoping that this comes out on the positive, will remain to be seen, and certainly we will update you in, uh, as we get more guidance. And um, this is a great time, by the way, guys, for to monitor the AAA and your state association, support them, um, uh, keep, it, keep abreast of what's going on. Uh, next, we come to telehealth. Now, there's been some questions that we fielded uh, about telehealth because this has now all of a sudden come to the forefront. Now, we all know that the, the ET3 um, uh, program was out there. It just was about ready to be, begin to be implemented and up pops good old co uh, coronavirus. So um, on a fast track came discussion about how we could treat and evaluate people using telehealth to minimize the interaction. Um, so ambulance staff can be on site and quote unquote work the telehealth uh, as the delivery device part of this. Um, so previously it was certain healthcare professionals who would be in the field monitoring and they even had pinned it down to the type of device because of HIPAA security. Um, they've relaxed those rules. It could be a cell phone with something like Zoom or Skype uh, where a medical professional, a doctor, is on the other end and evaluating a patient. Now, with that, CARES modifies the direct supervision requirements of this portion. So it does allow physicians during this PHE to contract with an ambulance service where the medics and or the street staff would maintain the telehealth connection at the patient's home or at an alternative location where the doctor is interacting with the patient using the telehealth source. Uh, but the doctor is the primary source of billing and reimbursement from Medicare for the service. So when we first started to discuss what the possibilities were, there was discussion of allowing ambulance to bill for these services directly. That has been struck down. So Medicare's guidance on this is that uh, the doctor will bill and then if the ambulance entity wishes to be involved and the doc contracts with that ambulance agency, then the ambulance would bill the doc and the reimbursement for their services would come under contract with the physician who is providing the telehealth guidance. So there is no direct billing at this time uh, for telehealth directly by ambulance to Medicare. And again, folks, this is separate from ET3, has nothing to do with ET3 whatsoever. Uh, so uh, please do not uh, mix the two up there. And it's easy to do because we've talked about those things now for, for several months. 
Okay, next, uh, there's a pause in the Medicare pre-authorization model for scheduled <clears throat> repetitive non-emergency ambulance transports. So this affects those ambulance supp suppliers who provide scheduled repetitive transports. Now remember, these are the three transports in a 10-day period or one transport per week for three consecutive weeks. Because I'll remember, this is the, uh, in those states that were part of that model program that has been ongoing now for several years, including the states of Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, and the District of Columbia. So beginning immediately, there is no longer a need to seek a pre-auth prior to beginning these repetitive transports. But there is a caution. Uh, these claims will certainly be subject to review after the PHE crisis has ended. So it's not like you get uh, a mulligan for these transports. They can go back, probably will go back and review them. But for now, they're removing that uh, hurdle that we have to jump in order to begin transporting those patients. And frankly, that's as much to uh, segregate their staff from not having to come in and do the reviews as it is uh, to keep us from one more hurdle that we have to overcome. Now, uh, one of the other things I have on here, it's not related to Medicare, but um, the uh, president has signed um, 34 state-by-state, state, what we call 1135 waivers. Uh, he's done that in a record six-day period for all 34. Typically, these waivers involve months of negotiation, with the exception of uh, national emergency. So the last I remember, guys, I think was one of the hurricanes uh, in the effective states. Uh, what this allows is for uh, states to relax their rules on Medicaid. Of course, Medicaid is a federal program, but administered by the individual states. And so this allows for states to drop their uh, uh, credentialing requirements for individuals who uh, quickly need to become Medicaid. I think largely this is gonna be a case where those who have lost their jobs and now do not have uh, commercial insurance coverage can quickly hop on and be covered by Medicaid. So there is Medicaid coverage. Of course, there may be allowances for other things such as changing the origin and destination rules uh, for Medicaid, whereas uh, the other uh, rules that we talked about would only be for Medicare. But uh, those states, and I'll read them quickly, uh, Alabama, Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Mississippi, New Hampshire, New York, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Virginia, Washington, and Wyoming all have been granted 1135 waivers. So there's no time here for us to get in to all of those individual states. Highly recommend that you monitor your state-by-state -state websites, uh, keep abreast of what those changes may be. We certainly will update our account managers, billing directors will keep you in the know as much as possible. Our client services folks there, Gary's team will certainly let you know if there's anything substantive for that. Uh, and keep you in line. And then finally, and we'll close out with this and then move to questions, guys. 
we're starting to see state by state relaxation in crew requirements. So I can tell you here in Pennsylvania, just yesterday, uh, the minimum crew requirements were changed for both BLS and ALS. So prior to this, uh, for a BLS uh, crew to be legal, you must have an EMT and or a driver who was at least EVOC trained and CPR trained. <clears throat> that has been now lightened to just an EMT and someone who drives who has a license. In addition, the uh, intermediate ALS can now be an AEMT and a driver and a ALS paramedic uh, vehicle can now be minimum crew legal as a EMTP and a EMR and not an EMT. So prior to that it was paramedic and an EMT. So they're relaxing some of these requirements because of our own healthcare personnel who are being affected by this, uh, and also because um, of limiting and getting some more people involved in the care loop to minimize uh, overtime and strain and stress on the crews that are out there and whatnot. So um, I think New York also has tweaked their requirements. I know of that. Uh, I can't tell you of any other states, but be aware of that. We certainly are monitoring that, so you know. So we know what the minimum staffing requirements are when our auditing, our internal auditing of claims is going on. So we're not kicking back runs uh, that we believe may not be minimum staff. So we watch that very closely on behalf of our clients. And um, we certainly will keep abreast of that as well. And with that, my voice guys is starting to crack. So uh, I'll turn it back over for questions. Gary, take her away. Uh, Gary, you're on mute, bud. And I just reminded myself to turn the mute off, and I still didn't do it. Um, we did have a couple questions come in, gentlemen. Uh, so uh, the first one is, what about in, have you heard anything about in-home care for emergency medical services via telehealth and reimbursement? Well, it goes back to my comments on telehealth. Um, I... I, I don't know specifically if they have done anything but say they'll pay for it through the doc. Um, I haven't read anything more than that. You know, so they're starting kind of high level and then giving additional guidance granularly as we move along day to day. So I, I would stay abreast of that. I don't know, guys, did you read anything? I've, I've read that and that's about it, just that very high level overview. Right. They, they did relax the requirements on telehealth, but not related to EMS providers providing that service. So some of the uh, billing codes uh, for telehealth providers, you know, remote monitoring and those kinds of things, uh, they're going to relax much the way they have with us, some of the requirements. But as you pointed out, Chuck, uh, to the best of our knowledge, as of today, there's no direct reimbursement uh, for EMS agencies for being a part of that chain, unless it comes from the certified or licensed telehealth provider. Thank you. Next question. Has there been any comment by CMS on the first, this is actually a really good question, on the first wave data collection requirements starting this year? Mm. Uh, actually, this was brought up during one of the uh, AAA um, sessions that I attended over the past couple of days. Um, 
there is discussion at, at least by the, the American Ambulance Association to include a carve out on their AMBER tool, which some of you may be using. So, you know, the AAA has that uh, for members and it's uh, at a fee. I think we covered that during the, uh, the uh, cost, one of the cost data collection uh, webinars that we did, but um, there is that tool to help everybody collect their costs. But the comment made was, they don't think that it will change anything because this is a cost that you're gonna have over this year to provide the service. So while they're collecting costs, this would be part of that. Now, the, the sidebar to this is, does that skew the costs in the final report? Well, yes, it will if there's additional costs to do all of this. So probably some kind of carve out to code those in the data set. Um, you know, the final collection tool hasn't been released. So what is envisioned is that there will be some kind of carve out um, in order to note that those are extraordinary charges, but it's way too early yet uh, since we really don't have to report until next year, those of us that have been chosen first round to really get into that. They have bigger fish to fry right now, but it's a great question and it's not one that's lost on anybody who's, who's knee deep in that process. It, it is, you know, and I think this is gonna be an ongoing issue, Chuck, because you know, there might be local or regional sort of large events, you know, flooding, um, you know, local tornadoes, those sorts of things that occur to various, uh, in various service areas. And the ability to isolate those sort of one-time costs, which, you know, for us is a part of response and all that stuff uh, in our world normally, uh, but to be able to quantify those is an interesting one. I also want to just add quickly, one of my observations about what's happening on the air medical side with balanced billing is, I firmly believe one of the outcomes of all of this activity when things settle back down after the pandemic is that we're going to probably in the air medical transport world be on a similar trajectory with respect to cost reporting. I think ultimately it's going to be one of the only ways that we can arrive at a fair rate um, to solve the balanced billing and surprise medical billing issue. Um, and so just something to keep in mind, those of you who, are, who might be on the call from the air side who maybe don't operate ground, you should be watching these kinds of things very closely and following what's happening because I think we're going to find ourselves there at some point in the future. And Ed, we'll stick with the air side and a follow-up question. Has there been any determination on whether or not the rules apply to air ambulance? So far, we have only heard ground. Uh, you mean with relaxation of some of these? Uh, you yes. Know, some I, believe that's what, I believe that's what they're asking. Yeah, sure. sure. So to the extent that they would apply, um, so for example, if you find yourself on a prepayment review uh, for air medical transport, I would assume those same relaxations would apply uh, as they do on the ground side. And we are actually seeing that across the board. Um, and we, we moved, gosh, guys, maybe last week um, in the middle of this thing to submit uh, a lot of our claims electronically, which prior to the COVID-19 outbreak had been required to be submitted by paper. So we've noticed a lot more of the payers, not just Medicare and Medicaid, which we're talking about today, um, have facilitated or, or, or uh, agreed to allow electronic submission. So we are sort of pushing forward on that electronic submission, even though sometimes in the, on the air side, the dollar amounts are such that they trigger a prepayment review and, and the early results, again, just a week's worth, um, are that 
most payers are accepting them electronically where prior to the pandemic, they would have required a paper kickback. So again, we'll see what happens as we move forward if that stays. Um, so some of those things are gonna apply. Obviously transporting to alternate destinations becomes a little dicey because as Chuck mentioned, remember the medical necessity requirements do not go away. So uh, if you think that um, we're gonna get paid for transporting uh, a patient by helicopter across the street from New York Presbyterian Hospital's roof over to Central Park, um, I doubt that that's gonna happen um, you know, in that circumstance. But certainly there are some aspects of the regulations or of the relaxation of the regulations that would apply. Yeah, and the other indicator, Gary, is it mentions suppliers and providers. So that's a blanket for, and every, everybody falls into one of those two categories, you know, whether the provider side would be the A side, the hospital side, uh, you know, the B side would be, um, would be the most of the ground, but there are, uh, and help me guys, I, I'm not the air guy here, so you can fall in either of those realms, but it would be all inclusive for right. transportation. You bet, and, and I think the other piece that, that would apply uh, that Chuck mentioned is the is the suspension of the sequestration cuts. So that places our the folks on the air medical side in a position of again getting two percent higher reimbursement um, uh, based on the fee schedule. So there are certainly some pluses that would apply on the air side. I don't see any other questions. Uh, feel free to tap, type them in if you wish. I will also tell you if after the presentation you do have any questions feel free to write us at clientservices at quickmedclaims.com and we will be happy to respond to you. Uh, so we don't have anything else. Gentlemen, do you have anything you wanna add as far as closing comments? I had one uh, private uh, question that came to me uh, off book. It asked me how you guys allowed me to have a Eagle's cup on this presentation. Uh, so. Yeah, let me just lean to my left. If yeah. Steelers. Yeah. Just wanted to make that clear for everybody on the call. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, hey, we gotta we gotta stay light here, guys. I, I love that question. I'll I will answer that for my friend who asked that. But uh, that's that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, I I just have to take a moment, guys, like you guys have both done, and and say you know hats off to you guys in the field. I um, I, I have had to distance myself because I'm in a high risk group. I'm very asthmatic and very prone to pneumonia. And on top of that, my wife is immunosuppressed due to some treatments that she receives ongoing. So I, I, I have not been able to be out in the field. It's killing me. But um, I want to tell you guys that I just have, like, first of all, you're in my prayers. You're in the utmost of my respect. Uh, those of you that are out there doing this every day, um, you, you're, you're, you're heroes. You're absolutely right now American heroes. And uh, when this is all over, um, there will be a grand celebration for those of you that have stuck it out. And uh, uh, we, I want you to know that from this QMC guy, and I know the other two guys in the room, um, we got your backs and we're going to do everything we can to um, help you that you don't have to worry about this part of things. Uh, you go take care of those folks, keep them well, and we'll have your back on all this stuff. And uh, uh, that comes from my heart. So take care. Seriously, take care. Yeah, Chuck, thank you. And that's a great point. You know, we, we have um, uh, twice a day uh, COVID-19 calls, uh, the, the Quick Med Leadership Group, which we're all a part of. And um, I shared this with our team the other day. 
Um, very impressed with our, our group, our employees all over the country who uh, have done heroic efforts to sort of be able to continue to do what they do. You may be aware we've moved over 400 people from working in various offices around the country and locations to working from home. But as I think about you all and the work you're doing in the field, uh, uh, I came across a Winston Churchill quote, uh, which said, it's not good enough for us to do our best. We must do what is required. Yep. Yep. Says quite a bit. Folks, thank you all. Uh, usually our conversations are a little more upbeat, but we struggle with this as you do. And as Chuck and Ed both said, we wish you all the best. So uh, with that, I'll just wish you all well. And of course, now more than ever, I'll just say, hey. Hey, be safe, be out, safe out, out there. there.